The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect that of the staff and management of Good Karma Brands, but are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests of this particular show. America may have many, many days, but they will be full of trouble. There will be no rest. There will be no tranquility in this country. Until a nation comes to terms with our problems. Bringing you social and political commentary from his mouth to your ears. Breaking down the issues which matter to you. You are not put here to be a white man's footstool. You are put here to represent the very best in God's world. Legendary civil rights icon, the Reverend Jesse Jackson in the studio. Reverend Jackson, how are you? Mr. Reverend, good morning on this chilly Milwaukee morning. And I am pleased to have one of the founding members of the Black Panther Party, Chairman Bobby Seale. Mr. Chairman, how are you this morning? Good morning. I'm doing just fine. Thank you. From Mr. Eric Holder. Mr. Holder, so good to see you. How are you? Well, I'm fine, man. How you been? It's been a long time. Haven't seen you for a while. The Dr. Cornell West. Dr. West, how are you, sir? My dear brother, you're so kind. You're so generous. So, man, but I salute you and the work that you were doing there. Doing a magnificent job there, Wisconsin. Stream live on 1017thetruth.com. Call in with your questions or comments. 833-212-1017. Join us on social media at 1017thetruth. It may not be what you expect to hear, but I will definitely give you what you need to know. Are you ready for the truth? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Now, live from the American Family Insurance Studio at the Avenue in the heart of downtown Milwaukee, here is Sherwin Hughes. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Today's Tuesday, March 7, 2023. I've got a fix for a series of social problems we have in this country. I have a fix. I have a remedy for a crime problem, for a violence problem. You know what else I'm going to roll into that fix? Low voter turnout. You know what else I'm going to roll into this fix that I came up with? I should run for president. I should. Problem is, I don't know if I could beat Joe Biden. I could beat Trump. But I don't know if I could beat Joe Biden in a primary because I got to fix. We've been doing something wrong. Or maybe we've been doing something right. You know how people say the system is broken. We got to fix the system because it disproportionately harms you fill in the blank. Really it's poor people, poor people get harmed. And if you are a person of color, cause I can discriminate against people of color based upon how you look, I can funnel you into low performing schools and I can only offer you certain geographic areas to live in. It's easy to identify a person based upon skin color, ethnicity, nationality. And so those are people that we can, we can oppress. So the system is broken because that happens. And I can show you all the statistics where people who are brown. Well, depends. Certain brown does very well. East Indian brown does better than white people. But other brown people, not so good. Black people, not so good. I can tell you all the even health statistics, even things like infant mortality are just they're poor. 
Uh, Milwaukee is 130th out of 133 cities when it comes to success for black people. We also come to find out with that study that in cities of 500,000 people or less, black people do better. So maybe the key to our success and salvation to try and cheat this broken system is to move to a small town. Mayor Cavalier Johnson wants to grow Milwaukee's population to a million. Statistically, that will be even more harm for black people. I don't know what's in that secret sauce or that formula, but the larger the city is, the worse minorities do percentage-wise. Like You're always going to have a bunch of really, really super wealthy, rich black people in big cities, but you're also going to have way more poor people. So where we do best are in towns that are less than 500,000 people. So maybe that's the key to fixing this broken system or find a way to cheat it or find a way to hack the broken system. But are you guys familiar with that term? The system is broken, they say. The broken system. And then others will say, no, 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 no. The system is not broken. This is exactly how it was always supposed to operate. I subscribe to the latter, not the former. To break the system is to fix it. If you really want to break this system, it needs to be fixed. It needs to be reworked and revamped down to its fundamental core. And really all you have to do is read the Constitution with a particular viewpoint that really reinforces that people are created equal. Everyone deserves equal access to everything. All children deserve the exact same level of resources, no matter where they are from, no matter who their parents are, no matter where they live. I was digging around for some stuff today. We didn't really cover a lot yesterday. Yesterday was Zach and I's birthday, which I'll be honest with you, very distracting having a birthday on the same day as your producer and a producer birthday, same as yours. So we talked about all the birthday things. And thank you all so much for telling me and Zach happy birthday. We really appreciated it and we really felt the love. A lot of people said the happy birthdays on the social medias and on the Facebooks. And I think that's great because that's the only time I ever hear from some of these folks when they say happy birthday. Fair enough. I appreciate each and every one of you. Unless you typed HBD. If your ass is too lazy to type happy birthday, you can copy and paste happy birthday. You don't even got to type it. But to type HBD, don't don't leave. delete yourself. Block yourself. Seriously. How lazy have we gotten? I'm digressing. So I was digging around for some stuff. I was looking for some information. I try and connect dots because the thing about the Internet is there's so much information about everything. Like anything you could ever think of, somebody has asked that question and there's some information dedicated to it. Now, it might not be accurate and true. That's why you have to have the question or something that's a burning curiosity. You start with the Google search. You see what comes up. You read a couple of the. The previews of some of the articles, you read one that sounds plausible or potentially accurate, and then you see if that plausible, potentially accurate information that you found based upon your curiosity is duplicated and replicated. As you read more and more, you start to see some similarities and commonalities. So if there's a question that you have and you're seeking an answer and you Google for the answer, see if the answers remain consistent across different news sources, data sites, etc. And then after, I don't know, a couple hours, a couple weeks, days, months, years, you begin to see some real conclusions. So I've been doing some of that stuff for years trying to reach some conclusions. And today I reached a conclusion. 
Let me first start with this. First of all, to break the system is to fix it. So the system is not. When did it ever work for anybody other than white folks? It never has. Right. So the current system is in a state of disrepair. And to break the system is to actually fix it. So it's fair for more people. But I want to ask an objective question. And black people, I want you to pay attention and I want you to chime in, because what I think we sometimes lack as black folks is empathy. And who wants to empathize with a group of people? They're more than a group. They are an organization. They are a cartel. White supremacy is a gang. It has a military. It has an education system. It has a Department of Justice. It has legislators. It has executives. It's very well fortified. But you have to be able to empathize with it. And I know that that's tough because we don't want to empathize with the oppressor, but we sometimes do because some of the divisions that exist within the black community, meaning identify and we do identify the black people in our own community that we hate. So we actually have some tenets of oppression in us as well. But I mean, that's just American. It is what it is. But when you give it some real serious thought, think about it. The system works exactly how it's supposed to. To break this current system is to fix it. So I want us to empathize for a moment with people that we oftentimes don't want to empathize with because we demonize them. They are the worst because they have worked together in concert for a very long time to make sure that there is very little progress or there's slow progress amongst other races, particularly black folks, because it's the black people and the white people that have had the closest, most intimate, most dynamic relationship of all other races in this country. I would throw in our Native American brothers and sisters, too, because, like, we had to get the land from somewhere. You couldn't just have plantations. You had to steal the land. So I will include them, our Native American brothers and sisters, as well, because they were oppressed originally. That's where the land came from, you see. But I want you to empathize for a second. If you're a white person and your life has been good, your, I don't know, a couple of generations ago, your folks came over from maybe Germany or they came over from Ireland. They came through Ellis Island, one of those beautiful immigrant stories. They came here, a poor, tired, huddled mass yearning to be free. And they came to this country with nothing. Or maybe they came from Southern Europe. Maybe they came from Italy. You know how the Italians pretend that they're not white. Let's just say your great-great-grandparents or your great-grandparents that came over from Italy on a boat. They had nothing. They had nothing in their old country. They came to America for the promise, for the opportunity of a better life. And they got it. They came over here and they worked hard. We always hear those hard-working European immigrant stories. They arrived in America. They didn't know the culture. They didn't know the language. They didn't have any money. And for some reason, they only had like a rind of cheese and a crust of bread in their pockets. My great-great-grandparents came over here with just a rind of cheese and a crust of bread in their pocket. And then there, and there was a mouse in the pocket, and the mouse was eating the bread, so they came with nothing. It was such a sad story. But they got to New York, and they worked jobs sweeping 
feces off the streets or whatever they were doing. They worked very hard. They had a bunch of jobs and then they, they got married to the great, great, great grandmother and they had children and they worked hard and they taught their children English and the children worked very, very hard. And then, then the children graduated from high school. The parents were barely literate. And then those children went on to college and they got a degree and they became successful. And all the great, great grandparents that came over from Italy and Ireland and the damn Switzerland, wherever they came from, they saved their money. They were very frugal and they had a bunch of investments and they built generational wealth and they were able to buy a house because they were not impacted by housing covenants. And they built themselves up and they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. It's a beautiful immigrant story. If you come from that and you have a lot of pride in where your people come from, they came from southern Europe or northern Europe, they came over here many years ago, probably a hundred or more years ago, and they came with nothing but a crust of bread and a rind of cheese, and they worked hard. You have the American story. If you come from that, what incentive do you have to help black people become successful? You have none. You will just tell black people to mimic the story that brought your family intergenerational wealth and success. You will not look at policies. You won't look at laws. You won't even know what institutional racism is because that's the thing about it. While your ancestry was working really, really hard and they were saving their money and they're putting their kids through college, institutional racism was making sure that black people who had been in this country for hundreds of years longer than your people got nothing. So your folks grew up and came to this country and became professionals and successful right along next to institutional racism. So here's where it gets kind of cloudy and kind of tricky. Your great, great grandparents that came over here from Italy or Greece or Ireland because the Irish people came over here because they ran out of damn potatoes because the Irish people apparently only eat potatoes and they ate all the potatoes. We got to go to America to get to more potatoes. And so they all immigrated over here and the Irish people, like somebody lied to them and told them that they were actually slaves. They never were. They came over here to get potatoes and they worked really hard, you see, and they became successful when they came to America and they got off the boat on Ellis Island. They were successful because they did not not have to compete with black people for jobs, for housing or for education. So they didn't work that hard. Yeah, I said it. They didn't. You now have to work hard because you are competitive with me and I and those like me will beat you. You feel oppressed because your great great grandparents that came over here from Ellis Island did not have to compete with me. Now you have to compete with me. So you have zero incentive. To help create more black people like me. Because you can't compete with the ones that are here now. Oh, we gon' dance today, ladies and gentlemen. Put your dancing shoes on. Put them on. I got a phone number here if you want some of this. 833-212-1017-833-212-1017. You are listening to The Truth with Sherwin Hughes on the new 1017 FM. I'll be right back. It's the truth with Sherwin Hughes on 1017 The Truth, The Truth app, and 1017thetruth.com.
I told y'all I have a fix, right? There are a number of things that our incarcerated and more importantly, our habitually incarcerated offenders have in common, right? And some of the things we know, single mothers, right? There's going to be some poverty probably somewhere in there, especially the most violent offenders and the people that, that have these really long rap sheets that started when they were very young, like they're stealing cars when they're 11 or 12 years old and they get the find a firearm and then it's uh, gun offenses. Sometimes they're misdemeanors. And then it's, it might be a robbery, strong arm robbery. Then maybe an armed robbery. Then maybe they're involved in a shooting or they're party to a crime, to so a homicide. These things, they escalate. And so you can see this trajectory. And when you look at those individuals, and we have a disproportionate number of them, not just in Wisconsin, but in the Midwest, it's either us or Iowa that trades off for the largest per capita African-American incarcerated population. And so we, we study this this population intensely because we need to make policies based upon the number of people that find themselves incarcerated because we want to be safe, don't we? And every so often voters get real fed up and they want to be very tough on crime. See, voters are on one side of the equation and people who are involved in the criminal justice system. And let's be clear, some of them will be involved in the criminal justice system for the rest of their lives. It is a life sentence. If you get certain felonies, good luck. Pardons are hard to get. Ask Trump. They're easier to give than they are to get. So it's a lifelong situation or sentence that people are getting with a felony. But you know another thing that they have in common? People that are habitually in the criminal justice system. So first of all, they're not likely to be voters. A lot of times it's because they're disenfranchised. But even when they get off a paper, they don't vote. There is a, a determining factor, and it's right in front of our faces. And you know it. They know it. People know it. That's why this system ain't broken. If you want to break this system, you have to actually fix it. The system works exactly how it's supposed to. Because earlier I asked you, what incentive would any white person who's worried about themselves and their future, their economic security, they're worried about their kids and what kind of world their kids are going to grow up in. Maybe they're afraid that their kid's going to get shot by a black thug. But here's what, they, what you really need to worry about. You need to be worried about your kid getting shot by another kid in your suburban high school. It ain't us you got to worry about. We're, we shoot each other. We don't need to travel to shoot. In fact, we just basically travel the length of a, of a bullet's range. That's where we commit all our crime, in a radius of the range of the bullet. Right outside of our own front window. We ain't got to go to New Berlin and commit no damn crimes, shoot nobody, shoot somebody next door. But there's something that the habitually incarcerated have in common, and it starts very early. They can't read. Do you know that the difference in voter turnout between low literacy states or low literacy metros or low literacy cities and towns versus high literacy? And high literacy is 80% of that population or better is proficient. Not See, we got to look at reading and reading comprehension as something different. It's not, it's not just knowing words and having a vocabulary and being able to speak and being able to read. It's do you understand what you read? A lot of people can read the words, you see, but they don't comprehend. They don't know what the words necessarily mean. You can be functionally illiterate and have a fairly decent vocabulary, but if you cannot retain the information that you are reading, 
your literacy levels are low. So there is a difference between those who read at an 80% proficiency level or better and those below because those that are 80% or better vote. 73% voter turnout versus, versus people that live in low literacy areas is 58% voter turnout. That difference right there between people who are literate and people who are not or have some trouble with reading or reading comprehension swings elections. That is enough. a lot of elections, y'all, are within one or two points. But the difference between the low literacy and the high literacy voters is 15 points. So when the high literacy people who have more voter turnout say we want more prisons, we want to build a youth prison, we'll spend $80 million for a 32-bed youth prison, those people win because they are less likely to be involved in a criminal justice system and they are high propensity voters. Here's my fix. And I got all the information you're going to need. No one is going to walk away from this show with any doubts. Okay. Literacy is connected to confinement. It's connected to committing crimes and criminal behavior. These kids cannot read. If you cannot read, no one's going to hire you. There is not a job in the 21st century, 23 years into the 21st century, where you can be successful, feed yourself, feed your family, become a homeowner and an investor of your assets if you cannot read. If you can't read, you're going to jail. Here's the fix. The U.S. Department of Justice gets about $53 billion every single year. Not entirely sure what they do. There's some FBI stuff and investigative stuff. They investigate the things and they come and they tap your phones and they do all of the things. You know what the smartest way the U.S. Department of Justice can spend that $53 billion they get every single year? Invested in education. The better children can read, the less likely they ever are to interact with the criminal justice system ever. Do you know that 14% of the kids at MPS are literate? 14%. of them can't read, not at a high enough level to have any kind of measurable success unless they go back to school and take a bunch of remedial classes at a junior college, which, of course, is going to cost them more money because they got to borrow the money because they don't have the money for college to begin with. I need you to understand what that means. And we know these numbers because they are replicated every single year. So what incentive do white folks have to improve the literacy of black children? Zero. Because you can avoid them. If you know that this is where the blacks live, they live in this neighborhood. Hey, this is where the schools are. This is where little shops and little stores are, little smoke shops, little candy shops, whatever little store, little cell phone beeper shops. Do we still got beeper shops in the hood? We used to have a beeper shop on every corner. Let's get candy and a beeper and some and a weed pipe all in this little shops, cell phone, weed store, cigarette store. Okay. And if you know that the people that grow up and that live in this area, their schools are producing illiterate children, just stay out of that neighborhood. Just don't go there. Just don't go there. You can avoid it. So what incentive do people have? And I'm, it's kind of a rhetorical question. I'm kind of being objective. I'm kind of asking you to empathize. I'm kind of asking you to use your brains today. What incentive do you have to help people in a neighborhood that you want to have nothing to do with? Where do you benefit? Now, I could explain how you potentially could benefit because the 
the better off we are, the more literate we are, the more resources we have for our education system, we can save a whole bunch more money. You're going to have less alcoholism. You're going to have less teen pregnancy. You're going to have less divorce. You're going to have more investment. People are going to have much more money. They're going to spend more money. They're going to invest more money. And really, all the boats are going to live. But that's kind of a far-off concept. But as of right now, what incentive do people have who have that great immigrant story? Well, their great-great-grandparents came over here on Ellis Island. They worked very, very hard, and they became successful. And I got to explain to those people, Nah, your ancestors didn't work that hard. They just didn't have any competition from us. That's all. Because they cling to that story because to them that's a very American story. Like the people that fly the American flag. I want you to drive through a black neighborhood. Some of you have no choice. But for white people, I mean, you can lock your doors and roll up your windows if you need to. But chances are we ain't going to mess with you. Strive to a black neighborhood. Just go somewhere. Go somewhere off of, I don't know, Melvina. 35th and Melvina. Ride up and down the elite single-digit streets. North Avenue between 35th and then go east till you hit the east side. Ride all, all up and through there. And then try 38th and Hadley and 15th and Locust. Hell, you can take Locust all the way to 51st Street. Just ride through the hood. Just take a little joy ride. Do a little, get your cell phone camera out, take pictures of black people doing black people things. Just take a ride. Count how many American flags you see. Count how many American flags you see. Riding through the north side of the city of Milwaukee. I, I would argue you will see more Mexican flags on the south side than you will see American flags on the north side. That means something. I want you to understand the symbolism of that. We don't fly the American flag because the system is working for some Americans. It is broken for us. We're not going to fly a symbol of broken. That's like posting the worst pictures that I've ever taken on social media. Black people flying American flags. Now, we're Americans mostly by force. And I, most of us, will, we're going to stay here because even if given the choice, if we do leave America, we come right to hell back. Even the passport bros don't relocate overseas. Some of them do. Some of them go over there and go to the Philippines and Thailand and get them a wife and never come back. Most of them come back, though. The system is working. In order to break the system, you have to fix it. To fix the system is to break it. The Department of Justice knows, because I've seen grants from the Department of Justice. We used to get millions of dollars worth of grants. They used to have these things called community learning centers. I don't know if they have them anymore, but they're basically after school programs where you keep the kids in the school and you offer a bunch of different programs. You've got homework help and you've got tutoring. You've got like extracurricular activities. I guess sports could probably be included in that. And just general recreation where the school is open sometimes until six, sometimes until nine o'clock at night where the kids just have more academic enrichment and there's GED classes. Even the community used to be invited to participate in free GED classes because the U.S. Department of Justice funded schools being open into the evening. Why did they do that? Well, you can sell it as, well, we want kids to get more homework help and have access to computer labs. Now, this was also before everybody had a smartphone, where if you needed Internet connection, you had to go to the library. You had to go to a place, right? And a lot of those places would close, right? So we keep the schools open through the Community Learning Center grants. You keep the school open until 6 o'clock and in some cases 9 o'clock but also help with child care. Some parents didn't get home from work till seven o'clock. And if you 
didn't get home from work until seven o'clock and your kids get out of school at three, you might got to pay for four hours of childcare. But if you have a community learning center, your baby could just stay at the school and they'd be there with the teachers. And of course, there was safety and security there. They could go play basketball, do a little shoot around. They could play in a computer lab. They could just run around the school in a very safe environment. And the Department of Justice funded that. Why? Because crime went down when kids were off the streets and in the the protection and the confines of the school. Crime went down and they did better in school because they got homework help. Crime went down. These kids can't read the number one link. It's almost a one to one correlation. Ain't nobody in prison for a violent crime with a master's degree. In fact, dropping out of high school, you're something like five times more likely to be incarcerated if we keep them in school. But you got to do more than that. See, here's where they screw these kids up. You bulldozing helicopter parents, you. Your kid can't read, okay? Sorry, but you know they can't read. Hell, you can't read. And I'm not shaming you for it, but let's, we got to talk about it because it's ruining this country. It's ruining this city. We are churning out functionally illiterate people that have nothing, no hope in this society. You, you can't make it. The world is too technical. It's too sophisticated. You can't make it unless you have some basic literacy skills. It's just really, really tough. It's, it's hard. It's hard. It's nearly impossible. Here's what happened, though. We stop holding kids back. If the child is doing miserable in third grade, but like they could be a little bit better, right? They just need a little bit more of third grade. They need a little bit more academic enrichment. They need the courses repeated to them. They do. They'll be fine. They just need another year of the third grade stuff. We don't do that. We promote them to fourth grade. They haven't mastered third grade. Now they're in fourth grade. Ain't no way they're going to master fourth grade. They didn't master third grade. Now you promote them to put them in fifth grade because you don't want the stigma. The child is going to feel a certain kind of way. That child needs to feel the stigma because here's the thing. It ain't going to kill them. Children need disappointment. They need it. It's a coping mechanism. It helps them become functioning adults because you know what adulthood is? Disappointment. You're going to be disappointed by everybody and everything, by your friends, by your family, by your employer, by your spouse. But we try, we push these kids along because, well, that's not nice. That's not fair if you hold them back. Other kids may tease them. You're right. They might. They may. Got to get used to it. And I think that there is some functionality It's a passing kids from one grade to the next, knowing that they are going to fail. Because ultimately, if they graduate, they're not going to be competitive. They're not. They're not going to be competing for people, for jobs, because the whole thing with white supremacy in this country, you got to find as many ways. And you could just use outright laws. Black people, yeah, you can't come here. You can't go to school here. You can't get these resources. You can't live in this neighborhood because the values of the homes are really, really high. We want to keep you away from equity. We want to keep you away from building wealth and building assets. Now you got to be much more creative. The reason why your ancestry that came over here from Ellis Island, I'm talking about the white folks, not black folks. We didn't come that way. We came further south. 
But the reason why you think that they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps is because they were not competitive or we were not competitive with them because laws actually confined us. So it seemed like they worked really hard. I mean, they competed with other immigrants, but those immigrants all came here knowing nothing. They didn't speak the language. They didn't know a damn thing about America. But I know this. They didn't have to compete with, oh, I'm about to do it to them. You know, the black men were skilled labor. When we were released from the plantations, we were skilled labor. We knew how to farm. We knew how to be blacksmiths and shoe horses. We knew how to build buildings and houses and roads. Hell, we were engineers because when you owned black people and you owned the labor, you taught them skills because they performed those skills for you. So when we were freed, we were skilled laborers. Those immigrants came over here not knowing nothing about America. So you had to use laws to subdue the skilled black labor. Then to solidify that, they had these things called closed shop unions, meaning skilled black men that were coming north to get jobs that actually paid wages. Because in the South, all you got was room and board and you got beat up a lot. And sometimes they'd kill you and they'd hang you. But we, when slavery ended, we moved north. We had the skills to work in the foundry. We had the skills to work in the manufacturing plant because we had did that stuff for Massa. So closed shop union said, nope, you have too many skills, black folks. You're going to make our white labor force look dumb because the white labor force was dumb. You understand that black children were learning these skills since they were four or five, six years old. They were in training to be skilled labor. They were born to be skilled labor. And so when they were free and could make a wage, closed shop unions kept us out. I'm going to take a little break. Are we talking today? Y'all thought it was sweet because it was my birthday. I'm back today. 48 years old and I feel good. Truth with Sherwin Hughes on the new 1017 FM. We'll be right back. This is The Truth with Sherwin Hughes on 1017 The Truth, The Truth app, and 1017thetruth.com. Our phone number here, in case you don't have it is 833-212-1017 833-212-1017 got a text message from 262-388 that says how was zach and yours birthday yesterday no oh, it was good got a cake and a bottle of wine and zach gave a thumbs up so we both got cakes both got bottles of wine Zach, did you get a gift card to the Third Street Market Hall? Yep. How much is on your gift card? $1,000? $20? Yeah, $20 on mine, too. And then um, my lady friend made me dinner. Made, uh, we had Caesar salads, homemade Caesar dressing, the anchovies. It's not a Caesar salad unless it has anchovies on it. That's not a Caesar salad you're eating. It should be anchovy paste in the dressing. And we had this... Um, pasta dish with the stewed tomatoes and the feta cheese and what's the what's the brown olives the kalamata olives it's very good it's very delicious uh and then uh watch some watch a little tv so it was a good birthday it's low-key but i'm old now so that's what i do 262-388 goes on to say yesterday you talked about a similar topic issue i was just at the la causa de esperanza gala 
heard a speaker that was an assistant principal that was telling us about a kid that had behavior problems in class. The assistant principal went to the class to remove the problem child and then asked the child the second time he had to assist in removing the child. Why do you keep doing that? The child replied, saying it was because he was stupid. When the assistant principal heard his students reply, he immediately turned to the child. Hang on a second. He immediately turned to the child to building value in the child. And as of last Saturday at the gala, he is excelling in all of his classes and reading ahead of his grade level. We need to start building value in young children, letting them know they are more than what they see when they wake up or walk out the door, but needs to be spoken about in the home schools streets was that Mr. Bruce in Menominee Falls, damn, this text message is long, was that Mr. Bruce in Menominee Falls with Kaylin outside last year. There was five young black boys that people were looking at. Kaylin walked over to the kids and took some time to show value to those kids. We need more people that will do this. Our young people are... In line next, our power to positivity and goodness is in the tongue. Some may remember back then communities were built by the people in the communities. I was born in Germantown, Tennessee. Shout out to Shelby County with grandparents from Ashland and Kosciuszko, Mississippi. And if I look like or did something I wasn't supposed to be doing, said adults would then yell at me all along with build value to make me look at things differently in a positive way. Look at what happened in Missouri. Pastor Mark Coelho Frutrell, Mark Coelho Frutrell and former police officer have three armed black boys that showed up to his church service to possibly rob the church service. He immediately defused the situation by using his mouth with prayer. Proverbs twelve eighteen. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat the fruits. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Proverbs 21, 23. And always remember, change happens from the people in the community. All right, I was thanking for that. Was a, you texted all that? You need a keyboard. Text all that. Let's see what else we got. Avery says simply, yes, sir. Denise says facts. Let's dance. Grant says, Professor Hughes, a couple of things. You mentioned running for president and breaking the system slash draining the swamp. I I ain't saying nothing about draining no swamp. No, those ain't my terms. Who would you choose as your Steve Bannon? Secondly, most candidates, the voices change and become more presidential as the campaign advances. I'm not sure we've heard your presidential voice. I guess I would just try to sound like Obama because you're almost like that. Uh, look, uh, listen, uh, listen, we can do a lot, a lot better in America. I believe this country holds great promise. Just look at me. Skinny kid with a funny name. Well, I'm not skinny. I'm fat. My name is Sherwin Hughes, but my name is still funny. We can do a lot of things in this country. We put our mind to it. That's all you got to do. And just like that, y'all would vote for me. Problem is, the people that I would want to help, 
because I have to break the system to fix it. And the people that I'll be breaking the system for wouldn't vote for me. So the people that want to maintain the system, listen now, hold on, listen. The people that want to maintain the system that's broken for us but works for them are the people that would vote for me. So I would have a fiduciary responsibility to my voters, the ones that want to keep the system just as it is, not break it to fix it. Therefore, it would just be the same thing all over again. Now, I can throw little crumbs at people who are on the bottom end of the spectrum. I can throw a little crumbs, but you know what happens then when you throw a little crumbs? Because you can't get elected by the people that you want to help because the people that need the most help vote the least. You got to understand that. That's fundamental. That is foundational. The people that need the most help vote the least. And so here's what you do. You got to throw them little crumbs. You got to say, okay, we know you can't afford health insurance, so we're going to have an affordable care act where you can pay 11 damn dollars a month to go see his doctor. And then they'll have that, right? You throw them little crumbs, you throw them little things. But then at the end of the day, at the end of your term, because remember, you got elected by people that want to maintain the system, not the people that want to break the system to fix it. And then the people who you're throwing little crumbs to, because you can't go too far. Like Barack Obama couldn't say, I want to help black people because black people have been getting screwed. He couldn't say that. He had to help a whole bunch of white people and just kind of help black people like on the side. And then what happens? The black people that he helps say he ain't do nothing for us. That's the dilemma that we are in. They can't just come out and give us a bunch of stuff. It'll be a damn civil war in this country. They can't do that. So they got to be covert. But we have to understand what they are doing. It's like, why do you think we have a a six, seven billion dollar surplus? Why do you think we have that in Wisconsin? We're not smart financially. We didn't raise taxes. Where did that money come from? It came from the Biden administration that wanted to be friendly to a Democratic governor in a state that Joe Biden won. And so what Tony, do y'all know how often Tony Evers is in the black neighborhoods? Do you know how much money he is giving to black businesses? Do y'all have any idea? He is throwing money at y'all. Tony Evers administration has given millions of dollars. I'm going to be honest with you because y'all need some honesty. To black businesses that don't deserve it. Throwing money at a Tony Evers is in Bronzeville like once a month. Just walking around with Malele, just walking around with Kalen Haywood Jr. Just just walk, just walking through black neighborhoods, just throwing money at us. See, that's how they help black folks. But black people who are not at all involved in that progress with those monies and those resources that are being thrown in our community. They think Tony Evers ain't doing nothing. You got to understand the chain of command from Democratic presidents to Democratic governors to black constituencies in metro areas. Once you follow that, because don't they always tell you to follow the money, right? All you got to do is follow the money. We got a bunch of COVID money because we got a Democratic governor that would do right by Democratic constituents. Who's the biggest, most loyal Democratic constituency? Tony Evers. Tony Evers. Don't don't ask me. Call your state representative. If you got a black state rep, call them and let them tell you all of the money and all the resources. They're doing stuff about lead pipes, infant mortality. They're throwing money at our community. Throwing it. That's how it works. But then at the end of the day, if you still make bad decisions, you're going to say, well, the governor ain't done nothing for me. Well, they can't because you still make bad decisions. But your, your community is incrementally getting better. Like You're not getting better, but your community is. So you can't sit here and say, they ain't did nothing for me. Yeah, but you're not doing anything for yourself either. Take a break, come back, take some phone calls, I believe. Got a couple of them on the line. Got some more text messages, too. The Truth with Sherwin Hughes will be right back. You are listening to The Truth with Sherwin Hughes on 1017 The Truth, The Truth app. 
and 1017thetruth.com. Let's talk to Nicole. You're on the new 1017 The Truth. Thank you for holding. How are you? I'm good, Sherwin. Thank you so much for taking my call. My pleasure. What's on your mind? I, so I just wanted to comment um, on some of the things that you mentioned this morning. I have to say this. I absolutely love when you speak like you spoke this morning. It's it, Every time it stops me in my track and, track and it just calls for me to reflect. And I almost wish that it was mandatory that everybody living in the city of Milwaukee of age 18 listen to what you said today, right? Especially as it relates to the education and what's happening um, in the city of Milwaukee. And it's sad, you know, and it, and it breaks my heart. When you work inside the system and you see the low academic attainment with our kids and work, me, I'm having the experience of working within NPS and then working within other independent school districts, right, with kids within the same ages. And my heart just sinks because what I'm experiencing with other kids in other states in independent school districts and, and their ability to comprehend, their ability to analyze and to speak is so different than, the, the, the unfortunately, the kids that I've experienced in NPS. And I'm like, and I know with, with the right systems and with the right people, our kids could be so much better. Right. So with that being said, I'm just hoping that there is some change with the school board. I know that there's a lot of seats that's open um, for folks. And I, and I know I heard there's a quite, you know, there's a few more people that's running. We need a board full of Aisha cars. And that's just what it is. Right. Somebody that's in there, somebody that's trying to make the change, somebody that's um, relatable to the parents. Right. And somebody that's been in the education system and really trying to put forth some type of plan. Because I'm like, somebody has to be held accountable for what's happening in NPS. And who do we hold accountable? And while we're holding them accountable, how do we make sure that our babies are receiving the education that they need so they can have some future orientation? That's right. Right? So we're, and when we talk about, um, like, where our kids are, we talk about the third grade. My daughter right now is a kindergarten teacher inside of NPS. And we talk, Sherwin, we talk on a regular basis because she is so frustrated about what she's seeing. And it's not just from, NPS, it's also from the parents. It's like somebody has to be responsible. And while we're trying to hold people accountable and responsible for what's happened, how do we fix it at the same time? We're asking to like buy this plane while we're building it, right? But something has to happen because, you know, we're talking about kindergarten and she's just saying, when you're, you're mentioning earlier how a lot of times students are passed from one grade to the next, we know that happens. Do you also know that a, a student can't age out of a grade? And then that we have to pass them to the next. So, for an example, middle school. If your child is makes a certain age and they're still in middle school, they are automatically passed to the next grade, regardless if they're ready to go or not. That's an issue. So it's like, what do we do? How do we fix this? How do we make sure that um, we're giving the parents the tools that's needed and necessary to to be that first parent to to re you know make sure that things are happening at home to kind of reinforce what they're learning at school because we can't, the schools just can't do it by themselves. And when we have a kindergarten teacher who are begging, my daughter is begging with begging parents to come to parent teachers conference. You're not even given, given, you know, that type of engagement anymore. So she's like, what do I do? How do I get parents to know and understand that I cannot teach your child if your child is hidden and spitting and running all over the place. I cannot teach that child because I'm taking away from another child who's there ready to learn. So how do I take you, parent, 
to make sure that you have the tools necessary to make sure that your child is ready to learn in that classroom. Because if, if, if there's not a partnership between the two, you're going to get what we got. And nothing is changing at all whatsoever. Nicole, we're going to leave it there because I got to take a break, but I appreciate your commentary, yep. and I'm going to continue this conversation into hour two. I appreciate you. The Truth with Sherwin Hughes will be right back.